Welcome to Plano Podcast, tales of curiosity and character. I'm Tammy Hooker. We're glad you found our little on-air hangout with stories from inside Plano and just outside of what you might expect. The subject matter of today's episode is a little intense, so you might want to be judicious in listening to the podcast if you have anyone under the age of maybe 17 in the car. With that, let's get started. My name is Diane Reeve. I live in Plano. I'm the owner of Vision Martial Arts Center, and I'm the author of Standing Strong. When Diane Reeve of Plano met Philippe Padieu, she thought she'd met the man of her dreams. Instead, Padieu turned out to be her biggest nightmare. We'll hear her riveting story of betrayal, loss, and ultimately of standing strong up next on this edition of Plano Podcast, Tales of Curiosity and Character. Well, he was attractive. He was over, he was around 6'2". He was very well built. He kept himself in good shape. He was athletic. Um, he was handsome. He had a full head of hair. Diane Reeve thought she'd finally met the love of her life, Philippe Padieu, a Frenchman who was tall, dark, and handsome. The two dated for four years, traveling together, making plans to buy a home together. Then, in 2006, one Saturday night, on the day of her daughter's wedding, Reeve made a horrifying discovery. Padieu had been seeing other women, not just one, but many other women. He had been to the wedding all day. He called at about 6. We were supposed to be there at 7 and said, I'm not feeling well, I can't make it. And I was suspicious about that because A, he called from the cell phone and B, I just left him an hour before and he was fine. I went by myself, but his house was sort of on the way home. So I thought I'd go by and check on him to see how he was doing. And of course, when I pulled into his driveway, the house was dark and nobody was home. So I sat in the car and cried. But as she cried, she also got angry. That's when Reeve, who'd been paying the bills for Padua's cell phone, realized that she was able to check his voicemail messages. Well, there were two messages from two different women. One about Friday night. I'm sorry, I couldn't make it. I had to get diapers for the baby. And I'm like, all right, you're in your 50s and you're seeing a woman who has a baby. And the second voice was, sure, Sunday afternoon will be great. I'll see you then. That was three days, three different women. The couple broke up. Not long after, Reeve picked up another message for Padieu on the same cell phone. This time, it wasn't from a woman. It was a call from the Dallas County Health Department. The voicemail said, you need to come in for testing. And I freaked out. Within a few days, Reeves' worst fears were confirmed. Padieu had given her HIV. Of course, I was shattered. I called the health department, and as I talked to her and told her what I was going to do, and of course, I was nervous, and she was kind of help, trying to help me through it. 
we started talking. I said, did you talk to him? And she said, yes. And I said, what did he say? And she said he had a very odd reaction. And I said, what do you mean, an odd reaction? Well, she said, when I told him, he didn't <laughs> hold his breath. He didn't say, oh, no, I hope you're okay. Oh, no, what about me? He just said, you gave my name to the health department? And that didn't make sense to her. It didn't make sense to me unless he had already known and he had already been to the health department and he didn't want his name at the health department again. So that made us real suspicious. Using records from Padu's cell phone, Reeve began to contact the women he had been seeing to warn them to get tested. It turned out she was not the only woman that to whom Padu had given the virus, far from it. I found 12 that I confirmed diagnosis with. There were 15 total, that, uh, three more that I suspected. I found out later that there were many, many more that the health department found. I was told that he gave them over 100 names and more than half were positive. So I was really adamant that I was going to track down as many women as I could, just because I didn't want this to happen to anybody else. And as she contacted the other women, women who'd fallen for Philippe Padieu, other women who'd been exposed to HIV as a result, an unlikely bond began to form. The, the lady that I worked with that had given my name to the health department and I teamed up um, we talked, we were both sad, we were both shattered, we both had children, uh, we had a lot in common, but we also had him in common, and we also had anger in common. And I said, this is just wrong, and she said, yeah, I've done a little research online. And I said, oh yeah? And she said, yeah, I think that it could be illegal to knowingly transmit HIV without disclosure. The women went to the Frisco Police Department and shared their story with a detective who wasn't very encouraging. He told us that we had really no case. Even though we suspected that he knew, we couldn't prove it. Even though we knew in our hearts that he was the one that had transmitted to both of us, we couldn't prove it. And he said, there's only two of you. And we slumped down in our chairs. And he said, but, and we perched back up, if you had four women or five women, prosecutor would probably take a look at it. So we looked at each other and went, okay. Patiently following through on numbers in Padua's cell phone, even staking out his home to track down women he was seeing, eventually Reeve was able to assemble a group of six women, including herself, who were willing to testify. Prosecutors were able to obtain evidence that Padua had learned that he had HIV in 2005 and had continued to have sex with many women, possibly hundreds, without disclosing. That meant he had knowingly, willingly, and intentionally transmitted HIV to them. Now they had a case. But police warned that it would take about six months to get the case together before Padua would be arrested.
That was the most excruciating six months of my life. It felt like 60 years because every night we knew that another woman could be going down. Diane finally faced Philippe Padieu in court. Having him there was surreal. Just from start to finish, from 2002 when we first met and fell in love to that point in time was so radically different that it was almost too much to handle on top of being on the witness stand and having your sex life splayed out in front of God and everybody. Um, so it was tough. I knew it was going to be tough. He literally looked like a monster to me. He was not the same person in any way. You know, he was 6'2", he was, he was running around 200, 205 when, when I was with him. He looked like he didn't weigh more than 150 or 60 pounds at the time. He was gaunt, his hair was in this odd triangle shape, weird, frizzy, awful looking thing. And he was just sunken in, almost like he was a skeleton. And I felt like it was so symbolic because his outermost part, when I met him, was what his front was. And when I saw him at the deposition and at the trial, it was as if all of his facade had fallen off and I was seeing the real person. I was so invested in making sure that he did not hurt another woman that I really took on too much emotionally in that trial and felt like if he didn't get convicted, it was gonna be all my fault. And so the whole time, I was a wreck. Finally, a verdict. Reeve gathered with the other five women in the courtroom, holding hands and holding their breath. We were holding hands with each other and I thought my hands were gonna fall off because we were gripping each other so tightly. And it was interesting because the, the jury came in, the judge said, have you reached a verdict? The foreman said yes. And the judge took the paper from the foreman and he read, I've never seen a judge do this, he read the, the verdicts. First one, guilty. And we gripped a little harder. The second one, guilty. And by the time we got through the second one, I knew it was going to be guilty all the way down. We were all over the moon, like, we did this. We did this. We made this happen. We had a lot of help. We had a lot of people that were on our side. But we did it. Not gonna hurt anybody again. Reeve is trying to turn the experience into a way to help others and to empower women. Three little words to start out with, trust but verify. I ignored the red flags because I was in that point in my life um, and I wanted to make it work. And frankly, I was probably a little bit desperate, and I didn't want to know. Sometimes when he lied, it was a lie that I wanted to believe. 
have a website called datestronger.com that teaches women how to pr uh, protect themselves in the dating world physically, emotionally, and sexually. In the emotional part, when we see something that doesn't jive, a lot of times women second-guess themselves. And I believe that the reason that we do is because we are taught as young girls to be nice. How many times have women out there, myself included, as a little girl be told, oh, be nice, be nice. People like a nice girl, be nice to people. In my self-defense classes, I tell them to throw that right out the window because you can be nice to your family, you can be nice to the friends that you trust, but you do not have to be nice to everybody because everybody is not nice. And you need to trust your own instincts because if you act on those instincts, they're there for a reason. They're there to protect you. She formed a support group for women who were conned by Philippe Padieu. What we had that nobody else had was a sisterhood. Um, it was a club nobody wanted to become a member of, but if you had acquired HIV and you had acquired HIV in this way from the same man, there was nobody on the planet that understood any better than we did. We started to meet at my house on a routine basis because we needed to talk. We needed the support. We needed to tell each other it's gonna be okay. Each of us during some point in time during those meetings had a complete and total meltdown. And without fail, each time all the women gathered around and supported each one of us as we went through our trauma. I have some of the group members to this day who will call me every once in a while and say, thank you, Diane because I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for you. And you know, the funny thing is, I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for them. For Reeve, life has gone back to normal, or at least a new normal. A black belt in karate, she continues to run her martial arts studio in Plano. She's trying to take the lessons she learned from the experience to help others, and especially, to empower women. I'm going forward with my life because I don't stop. People in my life have called me a force of nature. Um, so I don't I don't quit moving. I still have my business. I still kick and punch and crawl around on the floor with kids all day. I haven't stopped doing any of that. You have to have the courage and the confidence to say, I am worth more than this. I do not deserve this treatment. I can do better than this. And it has to do, I believe, with self-worth and self-confidence and the ability to stand up for yourself. It took a lot of courage, but I teach courage for a living. And I tell my students that courage is doing what's right, even though you might be afraid. And I was terrified. 
I thought I could lose my business. I didn't know how my friends were going to react, but I was going to do it anyway because I knew it was the right thing to do. And with that, we reach the end of our time with Diane Reeve. Stay with us now for our wrap up, where we give you a peek behind the scenes with myself, producer Mary Jacobs, and a special guest. After all, what's the coolest little on-air join in Plano without sharing a little back corner booth discussion among friends? We have a special guest with us today. It would be my husband, Steve Levine. Yeah. Does it make you uncomfortable as a dude to hear this? Not uncomfortable uh, as a man, but, but just um, it's uncomfortable to just hear about man's inhumanity to man. When I hear this story, the first thing I think of are my daughters. Uh -huh. I, first thing I think of are my daughters. What's the first thing that you think of? Well, my first reaction was I had to go back out in the dating world when I was 48, and it could have gone so very wrong. Um, you know, could I have been fooled by this guy? Possibly. The other thing that really struck me about this story is she's obviously such an independent woman who is so strong-minded. She's a black belt in karate. I mean, how badass can you get? And she, she had a sense about this guy. She actually knew that he had a felony. So... It, there's something there about that women do, and I'm I'm not blaming the victim here. This is something I I needed I've had to look at myself, where women have the ability to ignore things when we really need to not ignore them. It's 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 something that needs to be explored, and I wish I could hand my daughter the tools to not do that. Yeah, she. And the other victims are walking around with a disease that has had and probably still has, to be completely honest, stigma associated with it. So she's fighting multiple battles. Well, it's silent. That was the scary thing about it was you could be with somebody who was obvious, who seemed healthy and you could seem healthy for yourself for years, even before it would possibly um, start to show symptoms. So it's, I covered this story in the early 80s when I was in a TV news producer and they didn't even originally know what it was. It was a cancer. It was showing up as Carposi's sarcoma in the gay population in San Francisco. Nobody really understood what that was about because cancer and, and transmittable virus weren't two words you put together. Do you remember the movie Fatal Attraction? In my mind, it was about AIDS because until then, sex was like fun, fun, fun. And then suddenly there was some ways that sex could mean death. And metaphorically, that was the story, I think. It's a tale that, whether it's told about HIV or told about some other danger, uh, you know, the Little Red Riding Hood, you know, going through the, yeah. the woods, um, you know. It's a very old story. It's, a, it's an old story, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has the, yeah. the, the concept of having... Uh, the wool pulled over your eyes, um, you know, is is basically what this is about. Well, I think she's brave. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's out there who hasn't read the book, I would encourage you to, to read it because there's, there's multiple bits that we don't cover mm -hmm. in our short podcast segment, mm -hmm. and it's worth a read. Tammy, do you want to repeat the information on her book uh, that you mentioned earlier? Sure. She has a new book called Standing Strong that's available at Barnes & Noble locally, or Amazon.com. This is Cole Boffin from the Plano Podcast. If you want to find out more information, go to planopodcast.com and click on episode resources. Mm -hmm.
we've reached the end of another edition of Plano Podcast, Tales of Curiosity and Character. We hope you've enjoyed today's topics and discussion. Remember to follow us on Twitter at at Plano Podcast and send us your feedback, ideas, and comments. Thanks for listening and subscribing. We'll be waiting for you at our back corner booth. Until next time.